Hello and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. I'm Jenny Vrentis here with Connor Orr. Connor, we've made it through 256 games of the regular season. The playoffs are now set. The playoff field is set. All of the seating. It seems like we didn't know at times if the season would be complete, if it made sense for it to be played as it was, but here we are. And now we have a lot of playoff matchups to discuss today. We have some head coaching changes to discuss and uh, should be an interesting show today. I love uh, I was watching Sunday night football um, like a lot of us and, and we'll get to and we'll get to that a little bit later. But the haughtiness with which the completion of this season was addressed then and several other times on primetime games like, of course, you know, they were always going to get through this. You know, we knew we were going to get going to be here. I didn't. You know, and I don't think you did, and I I don't think a lot of people did. Like I'm I'm still blown away, and I know that we've you know talked about this a few times, but the fact that we're here, um, and and again, I, I I'm not quick to applaud it and say that it's some sort of victory for protocol and whatever the NFL put into place. I'm thinking that they're pretty damn lucky that they got to this point, and uh, I I don't know. I think that's kind of the bow that I'm going to put on this more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And there were certainly moments when it was in doubt when games had to be moved. Uh, this year, there was a game played on every single day of the week. Uh, there was a lot of schedule um, moving around. There were games played without entire position groups. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of moving parts, a lot of hoops to jump through. But there's a playoff field. There is a Super Bowl scheduled for early February in Tampa, and that's what we uh, will be discussing for the next couple of weeks, Connor. So weird. Uh, it's th- the whole thing's going to be weird, you know. Uh, and but but I'm ready. Like I'm I'm finally dug into being a virtual football reporter. I don't know. Are you like are you good with this? Not good with this, but are you like dug in on it now? Like are you are you like used to it a little bit? Well. You know, there's certainly parts of the regular season that you miss in-person interactions of all kinds in all facets of life. Really miss the post-game locker room and being able to interview whoever you want. Uh, As it stands now, teams are doing the best they can to get as many players to a Zoom screen, but it's just not the same as being able to go into a locker room and ask a random player about one play and move on or, uh, you know, make sure that you get the most newsworthy person or be able to have a one-on-one conversation. These things are much harder this year, but given the circumstances, I think everyone has done a good job of making do and of figuring out other ways to write stories. And I think all in all, you have to say that everyone's done a pretty good job adjusting. It's been, oh gosh, uh, well, I don't know. I, I would have to go back and do the math on the last time that I had rice pudding at MetLife Stadium. Uh, it feels like a very long time. It's uh, in, you know, the breakfast, the eggs that we've talked about when you get there and the, oh man, the whole thing. It's been a very long time since I've had a good pregame stadium breakfast, you know? Yeah, I mean, the last locker room that I was in was at the Super Bowl. Um, God, and it'll same. be strange this year, you know, no post-game locker room access, none of the, normally they have guys going to a podium, there's, you know, 15 different podiums, and you can also go in the locker room. Post-game is 
very chaotic. And this year it'll be conducted on Zoom. So like everything else, you adjust and move on. Football is not the most important thing in the world. And we figured out other ways to do our job. But um, thinking about the Super Bowl, as we inch closer to that, will be an unusual experience uh, covering the Super Bowl under these strange conditions. Yeah. And for anybody who didn't read, uh, by the way, Jenny and uh, Greg Bishop uh, did the Super Bowl story last year, I would urge you to kind of go back and look at that because seeing you guys gather information after the game was mind blowing to me. Just the the like physical like hustle and energy that went into that. And, you know, I was thinking about previous Super Bowls that I've covered and, um, you know, when the Patriots um it was one of the Patriots' losses. Uh, why am I drawing a blank? The Patriots lost to the Eagles, and who did they lose to in a Super Bowl before that? The Patriots lost to the Giants. The Giants, yes. And, like, running around like a chicken with your head cut off, and I accidentally, this was back before another great story that Jenny did with Tom Brady's jersey being stolen. This was back before a lot of the big security at the Super Bowl ran into the Patriots locker room on accident before everyone was supposed to be allowed in there. And uh, I was just in there, and there was just a bunch of uh, people very upset. And then I ran back out before anyone could see me. But you're right, the chaotic energy, I don't think I'm going to be able to replicate that uh, frantically flipping through Zoom calls. And I'm going to miss watching um, Jenny uh, craft that uh, excellent Super Bowl story. So that's going to be a a little bit of a bummer this year. But it'll still be fun to read and, and excellent regardless. So. Well, it's a scramble for everyone through the bowels of the stadium normally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, one thing that you won't check off the normal season rhythm this mm-hmm. year, but hopefully in a year things will be back to somewhat normal. So, all right, why don't we dive into our first news topic, Connor, capping off the final game of the season. The Washington football team snuck into the playoffs on Sunday Night Football with a win over the Philadelphia Eagles. And while the victory can... Bird team. Love it. Love it, Shelby. Great work by our producer, Shelby, as always. While the victory continues the inspiring run for both Ron Rivera and Alex Smith, it was done under somewhat strange circumstances. Eagles head coach Doug Peterson pulled Jalen Hurts down three points in the fourth quarter, scratched healthy veterans, and went for an uncharacteristic fourth down in a less than desirable situation. After the game, he denied tanking, though his words rang hollow. What do you think of what we saw on Sunday? I'm really curious to to hear your take on this. I didn't get your take on this. I'm glad I'm doing this live. Well, Gary and I talked a little bit about it on the Monday morning pod. I think the Eagles have given an insufficient explanation of what the thinking was there. The most important evaluation that should have been done. So even if you're in that mindset of we need to evaluate players before the season ends would be on Jalen Hurts and you would think you would want to see as much of Jalen Hurts as possible before the season ends. And I think the biggest problem for the Eagles now is with Hurts and some of the other players. You could see in his face as he stood on the sidelines that it didn't look like he understood or enjoyed what was going on. He clearly wanted to be in the game. He deserved to continue playing. He's a rookie quarterback who was thrust in at the end of the season and Maybe he hasn't always been lighting the world on fire, but he had two rushing touchdowns. He showed some good things, and I would have preferred to continue to see him play. So it was somewhat 
hard to understand the motivation of wanting to put Sudfeld in, who is a player that you would think they already have a full evaluation on. But I will say, I I didn't have quite the same level of outrage, perhaps, that there was league-wide. Yes, the Eagles uh, did not do everything possible to win this game. I think it was exacerbated by the fact that the game was in prime time and that the Giants were hanging on every play, waiting to see. So the theater of Sunday Night Football was it, it made what happened in that game feel so much more massive. Whereas if it had been a 1 p.m. game, I don't know that we would have noticed it as much. Um, and I know that you wrote that you thought the league should get involved, and I wanted to debate that a little bit with you. Because my standpoint is we don't need more league involvement. Like <laughs> It would be hard to sort of litigate this kind of thing. How do you determine when a team is tanking or it seems like a difficult line to draw. And I think that from a team and player perspective, you would not want more punishment being meted out by the league office. But I'm curious your thoughts on why you think that would be a good solution here. Well, so I was an angry Senator mode last night, you know, and I, I will agree. I will, I will cop to a degree of grandstanding a little bit with what I wrote. I woke up this morning to plenty of uh, direct messages and correspondence. So thank you from all of you who reached out, even the uh, people who said that uh, they were praying for me and that uh, uh, God didn't appreciate my uh, my opinion on the matter. But um, I, I think that you have to take everything into consideration. And I understand all of the points that were to the contrary. Um, Jalen Hurts had a 25 quarterback rating. That's true. But, um, you know, he was also uh, doing really well on the ground. He had scored two rushing touchdowns and he was navigating a really good pass rush. Well, um, this is the same thing that I just think it's there was a line, and again, this is a difficult thing to nail down. It's an extremely difficult thing to litigate, but I think that there's like a super fine line, and and it was just crossed. And it's and now you've kind of opened the floodgates for um, any team that wants to be a little bit more brazen about this. And I, to me, it just you know the ethos of the game, what you're trying to get across. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how great it was that the Jets had come back and beat the Rams um, and how difficult it really is to tank in modern times. But if you have the head coach and the organization seemingly on the same page, it's it's quite easy, you know. And so, I don't know. I just thought it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. I, I think I was mad when I saw it because, you know, you're just trying to, uh, you know, you're trying to get across the best of what the sport has to offer, and that wasn't it. And the fact that, you know, there was some smugness on behalf of, you know, Doug Peterson, I think, uh, the fact that the Eagles didn't put any veterans on the Zoom call last night, just like a a, a handful of, it was Jalen Hurts and a handful of role players. We didn't talk to Jason Kelsey or, um, you know, any of the important players on that team last night. And so the whole thing just felt like we were being laughed at a little bit. And I think that that was really what made me write what I wrote because at the time I was just really, you know, you just feel like you're being made fun of a little bit when you watch something like that. Like you get excited for a game, you think it's going to be a legitimate thing. I think a lot of people tuned in for the theater and they were just kind of smacked in the face a little bit. 
I think those feelings are totally fair. And I think the Eagles have an issue now. You know, I think Peterson may have an issue in his locker room. I agree with you that the explanation was really unsatisfying. We don't exactly know. They didn't make it clear publicly what they were doing. They they didn't feel like they owed anyone who was watching that game any kind of explanation. Uh, it was just so, sort of glossed over. And I think, you know, we were talking earlier about the lack of open locker rooms right now this season. And this is a time when it would have been great to go into the locker room and hear directly from players like Jason Kelsey. How do you reconcile what you said earlier about playing to win every week um, versus what happened? And, and I, I, totally agree that it did cross the line. I mean, I think player safety, part of the reason you play to win games and you play your best players is a player safety consideration. Mm -hmm. You don't want it to be an overmatched thing. My only difference was, you know, I don't know what the league office can do or should do in this circumstance. I think this was more extreme than other cases we've seen, although... You know, we do see weird things happen in, in week 17 often. Uh, there are, is resting of players, whether it's for a younger player evaluations or a team is playoff bound. Uh, I also think the NFL should never have put this game in prime time. Mm-hmm. That's the risk you run when you have two teams that don't have something to play for and you pick that for your week 17 Sunday night football slot. There were a lot of other options. Um, for that game. And I didn't understand when, why they picked that game at the time. And it's confirmed it that you get a result like that, where everyone's kind of like, what are we watching? The announcers are openly mocking the game and it just leaves everybody feeling duped, which I totally get those feelings that, that you described Connor. And I I love the point that you made with player safety and to, to kind of take it a step further, I'm guessing that, and I've seen uh, some people who are kind of connected with the Eagles bear out the player that they're looking for, right? Because they moved up from number nine to number six with that loss last night and subsequently moved up whatever three spots in every round after that. Um, And it looks like, you know, whether they want that receiver or that left tackle of the future, one of the two of them will certainly be there at that number six spot for them. If you're one of these other veterans that are supposed to be there and helping this thing build, like like you said, I mean, you put your body on the line last night in a situation that, you know, your quarterback clearly wasn't ready to be in that game. There were players who weren't ready to be in that game, and you could have gotten seriously injured just so they could get this guy. And I don't know. I, I just think that there's going to be a lot of um, mixed feelings there. And Doug Peterson already has an emotional heavy lift to do this offseason. He's got to mend a relationship with Carson Wentz, uh, you know. He's got to, um, you know, he's got to figure out how to really mix Jalen Hurts into this offense to keep everybody happy, but also to keep his quarterback happy. If he wants to stay there, they got to figure out if they're going to trade him and what are they going to do with the cap space and all that stuff is going to have a real impact on this team's heart and soul next year. Not to mention, you know, throwing this into the fire. So I don't know. I just think it was a bad move all around. You let the guys have fun at the end of the year and you get the best player at nine. I mean, that's what I would have done. Um, you know, I don't know what anybody else would have done. I've heard some good arguments to the contrary, which when I calmed down this morning made a little more sense to me. But, at the, you know, in the moment there, like you said, I, I, I just felt duped. I think a lot of people felt duped. And I think it's going to be a dumb decision in the long run. I don't think that the team is going to uh, be healthier as uh, as a result of this. 
The NBA and the NHL use draft lotteries, as we all know, as a sort of way to con- discourage tanking. Uh, but when I, I reported a story on tanking last year centered around the Dolphins and in conversations with a member of the competition committee last year, they said that a lottery had never been discussed in the NFL and they really hadn't had substantive conversations about tanking at that point. Um, but you know, as you said, Connor, this was a sort of different situation. One other deterrent to tanking I had heard was setting a, an annual minimum salary floor rather than the minimum that has to be met across four years as is in the current CBA. But that is for the organizational kind of rebuild tanking. This, this is what we're talking about. It's different. We've said all along that front offices can tank, but players and coaches never do, but what the Eagles did on Sunday night uh, certainly challenged that notion. Absolutely. All right. How about topic number two, Connor? All right. Uh, speaking of uh, not great coaching news, um, so this is what's known as Black Monday in the NFL, where all the uh, teams who haven't made decisions on their coaching future do so. Adam Gase of the Jets, Anthony Lynn of the Chargers, and Doug Marone of the Jaguars were all let go on Monday, bringing the total uh, head coaching vacancies to six. Um, so maybe we'll just do a little rapid fire on the three openings, talk a little bit about what went wrong and, and whether their teams made the right decisions. So um, why don't we start with the Jets, uh, Jenny and Adam Gase? Yeah, I mean, obviously this was the move they had to make. They hired Adam Gase for the stated purpose of developing Sam Darnold and helping him take a step forward. His first season under Gase was interrupted by Mono. Uh, This year was also, you know, interrupted by injury. So it hasn't been an easy run, but ultimately they end up at the end of these two years under Gase uncertain about Darnold's future. They may move on from him. They may draft a quarterback. It didn't go the way they wanted. So now they move on. They start fresh, but they don't have the number one pick. So I know that our next topic will be talking a little bit more about which of the vacancies is most attractive, but the Jets' job is a harder sell. If you don't have the number one pick and you don't have the ability to draft and coach Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, I thought, um, you know, I, both of us at at, mo- at a lot of points, I think, were positive about Adam Gase, thought it was a good hire, um, thought he was doing a good job um, in, in, in with that team. But I think a lot of mitigating factors happen. I mean, that roster really did bottom out. Um, I think that the team did make the right call on trading, you know, guys like Jamal Adams and, and getting rid of Le'Veon Bell, if only because, you know, you were trying to see what you had there for the next year, but it, it, it makes sense. I just think that sometimes these situations happen where, you know, a coach gets lumped into, uh, when a team bottoms out. And I think that it's hard for the fans. It's hard for the players to separate the guy uh, who is calling the shots with the mood and the feeling at the time when everything is in a bad spot. And I think some coaches are just casualties of that. And unfortunately, you know, Adam Gase looks like he got caught up in that, but uh, and it seems like good news for him. He's reportedly, I think it was uh, NFL network reported. He's uh, uh, in front of the line for Nick Saban's new offensive coordinator at Alabama. So that's always a, uh, a quick little springboard into another head coaching job elsewhere. So good for him. That'll be a, that'll be a fun. Uh, you just get to go win a national championship. So that'll be a good time, you know? Yeah, obviously he has a link with Saban back from Michigan State. I I think, you know, 
one thing that I thought of when Gase took this job and is still true is why would you use both of your chances at a head coaching job consecutively in the AFC East? Mm -hmm. It was the same trap that Rex Ryan fell into going from the Jets to the Bills. Gase goes from the Dolphins to the Jets. You are in the same division as Belichick. Uh, of course, this year the Bills broke through. But point being, um, it just it, it didn't. His decision didn't make sense at the time. It seemed wiser, perhaps, to take a year off, recollect, and uh, you know, collect yourself and move on. Now, I, I get that sometimes coaches don't want to do that, or they don't want to step back to a coordinator position. They don't want to take a year off because they worry they'll never get another chance again. He saw a unique opportunity with Sam Darnold. But I do think that is a tough decision to make, to just go back-to-back -back AFC East coaching jobs during the Patriots' run of dominance. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, Anthony Lynn next. Uh, the Chargers had won f their last four games, um, won in overtime, which sort of helped uh, balance that narrative that they couldn't get, uh, they couldn't win close games that they had struggled with um, on and off throughout um, his tenure. And it's a weird feeling, right? Seven and nine in the division with the Chiefs is not necessarily a record to laugh at, especially when you have some of the injury issues that they had. And Justin Herbert ended up being sort of a bona fide star. He broke all the rookie passing records and now you you weigh that decision his development versus moving on for the health of the team this was probably a tough one I'm guessing if you're uh, the Spanos uh, brain trust there yeah I think some of the I understand some of the evaluation comes into losing these double-digit deficits letting those leads slip away but I don't know why Lynn is not getting more credit for how Herbert played this year. He mm -hmm. came into the NFL, and Herbert was not a sure thing. Uh, people weren't certain what kind of jump he would take. The way he's playing now is such a leap forward from the way he played at Oregon, and he didn't even go through training camp expecting to be the starter. They were going to start Tyrod Taylor for an indetermined period of time. So uh, I have... I've wondered why Lynn doesn't get more credit for that. You know, he's not the play caller on offense, sure, but he clearly played a role in Herbert's development, which Herbert has spoken to. Um, he entered the Chargers in a difficult situation. They moved cities, which wasn't something he was aware of when he took the job. Uh, so he led the team during a complicated move, which created challenging circumstances for players. Uh, he had a lot of injuries this year, which I don't believe he pointed out very often because coaches don't like to make excuses, but they had an, an aging roster uh, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I think he also didn't get to fully pick his staff. Ken Wisenhunt had come back to the Chargers the year before. Much of the offensive staff was a holdover from the previous regime. I think that's a very difficult situation to come into. So, as the Chargers look to hire a new head coach, yes, they seem to have an appealing situation because of Justin Herbert, but those candidates also have to evaluate, is the organization going to do everything? Are they going to give me an opportunity to run the team the way I want to run it? And I don't believe that Lynn got that full opportunity. Yeah, no, that's a great point and really is lost in the conversation when you hear about, and we'll talk in a little bit about which jobs we would want to take um, the most if we were a head coaching candidate, but you're totally right. I mean, if 
if you look at the situation and say, oh, yeah, I mean, look at this guy smashing all these rookie quarterback records. I mean, that's an obvious one for me. I still have four more years of him on his rookie deal. What can I do with all this talent? But we saw in Cleveland that a lot of things go into that, right? Baker Mayfield set the rookie passing record and then took a massive step backwards when you change the coaching staff. And I think that that could certainly be the case. You run the risk of getting rid of Anthony Lynn, getting rid of Pep Hamilton. These are two really smart, uh, really forward-thinking offensive coaches that are being kind of tossed out um, with the bathwater here uh, in L.A. And, you know, I I think that the promise of the next offensive guru is not necessarily one that is going to guarantee any measure of success here, you know. Um, But you're right. I, I don't think enough is said about sort of the the Sisyphean nature of that, you know, uh, playing that season on the road, playing with in front of no fans. I mean, I mean, so much of that had to be just completely miserable in an uphill climb. And there are a few coaches that I think that could have done it with the sort of the finesse that uh, Lynn was able to handle that situation with. Yeah, I, I think if I were the owner, I would have liked to say to him, you know what, fix your staff, make some changes. Let's let's give it one more shot next year and see what happens then. That would have been my inclination. Yeah. Um, the third one, Doug Marone, uh, the Jaguars are now, uh, you know, first uh, first overall pick. Uh, there were certainly moments where it seemed like Jacksonville was playing hard for um, Marone throughout the season. He came highly recommended to the Jaguars. Uh, the Jaguars ownership really liked some of the coaches on their staff, and so I think that that's all went into why he was able to finish out the season despite the fact that Dave Caldwell, the general manager, was not. Um, but I... I you know, with him, I just think that the job now becomes way too desirable and you're going to have a line of candidates outside your front door that you never would have been able to attract if you didn't have the situation you have now. And while I think that part of that is a shame uh, and I think would obscure the hiring process, you know, we're already talking about Urban Meyer when they haven't interviewed a single minority head coaching candidate for the opening. Um, you know, I think that uh, this is a situation where you know he, it was. It felt inevitable that he was going to go, but now you're sort of worried about maybe where the hire is going to go from here. Yeah, it makes sense for the Jaguars to start fresh with a clean slate, new head coach, new GM, new quarterback. All of that makes sense. But I think you're right, Connor. Is now the question is what are you looking for in the next head coach, and not getting sucked into the the trap of all these people trying to sell themselves to you because of Trevor Lawrence. I mean, I, I think back to, uh, with the Colts and one of the things they said they liked about Frank Reich was he didn't ask a ton of questions about Andrew Luck's health. He said, I would like the job regardless of who the quarterback is. And I, that's always kind of stuck with me because that, Yes, the quarterback is an important factor. Every candidate considers that. But the idea is you're you're taking a, a job that you don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know what the circumstances will be. I mean, yes, it looks like the Jaguars will draft Trevor Lawrence, but you accept a job trying to lead an organization, and that can't be the only factor that you consider. I, I would challenge the Jaguars uh, brass to rewatch, I think it was the second or the third season of Friday Night Lights on NBC, where you have the scrappy 
Matt Saracen quarterback, the kid who earned his way all the way up through the ranks, but then you have J.D. McCoy who transfers from another school. He's like the freshman wonder kind. He brings his own offensive coordinator with him, causes a lot of problems, and really heed the lesson there. Uh, you know, the Urban Meyer, I think, is the flashy kid that's coming around, saying, making a lot of promises, making you feel really good about everything, but I don't know. I, uh, I would not go in that direction. Uh I don't know. I, I just would not go in that direction. And now you're, you know, it, the way that it was rolled out, uh, that it's been rolled out. And I think if anybody's been following this process closely, it's okay. Urban Meyer's interest, you know, the, they get the number one pick. Urban Meyer's interested in the job. Report. Urban Meyer needs $12 million a year to come down there and do this, you know. And where are you, you know, how much of your soul are you willing to give away for a non guaranteed product, uh, A, and B? You know, it just seems like there's going to be a lot more sensible decisions that you could run the organization the way that you still want to run it. I think that there's a lot of people who leave Jacksonville still saying good things about the you know ownership there and stuff like that. Why wouldn't you keep that in place and kind of have that same momentum going forward? I don't know. The, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but um, I am not a uh, I'm not a billionaire who owns an NFL team, and I think a lot of uh, which may come as a surprise to to many of you. Yeah, I agree. I, I would have serious reservations. The college to the NFL jump is not always a successful one. Um, would, would Urban Meyer want to be there for the long haul? There's just a lot of questions, and I would hope that they seriously consider other candidates rather than the name that they think would make a big splash. Who who hasn't any? You know the meme that's like, if you don't love me at this, then you can't have me at this or whatever. Like someone should do that with Urban Meyer if you don't love me at with like a picture of like the poor little Jaguar falling out of a plane or whatever he did and then you can't have me at, at Trevor Lawrence I think that's what they should have uh, they should have done I don't know I like that I like that all right along these same lines is topic three speaking of head coaching vacancies imagine you are the hot coordinator du jour which one do you feel is the best and which is likely the worst for you why don't you go first well, the Chargers has a lot of appeal, obviously, because of Justin Herbert. Um, and, you know, they had a good draft last year. There are some young players to build around. My concern with the Chargers would be sort of what I touched on with Anthony Lynn is making sure that you are empowered to do everything you want to do to lead that team. You know, will you be able to bring in your entire staff? Will you be entrusted to take the measures you need to lead the team in all facets. And I don't think he always had the resources. That's that sort of shows up. I think over the last few years is did he have all of the resources he needed? Did he have all of the license he needed to lead the team and shape it in, in the way that he wanted to? So I think that is a big question for the next person because it's such an attractive job maybe someone comes in there with leverage to demand all of those things maybe it's someone with more leverage than you know Lynn was a first-time head coach right so um I I just think that that's a big consideration obviously the Jaguars job is appealing because of again Trevor Lawrence there's a lot of space to work with you are you know beginning a rebuild and you really do have an opportunity to build something in your own image there. Now I will say, and this per pertains a little bit more perhaps to the general manager hire, but Shad Khan's comments that he actually controls the roster yeah. were very troubling and really 
unnecessary wrench in <laughs> what is like everyone looks at that. Okay, great. There's a fantastic opportunity with the Jaguars. And then the owner comes out and says something like this. And you're just like, hold up. What's yeah. going on here? Yeah, that was weird. Um, and I think even re- regardless of how true that is, um, you know, that would be something that I would have kept in my hip pocket, you know, and probably not fired, you know, on a, uh, in a national perspective before I start interviewing general manager candidates and, and head coaching candidates. But uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, that was an interesting one. Um, I, the Jaguars were certainly going to be one of those teams that were at the top of my list. But I, I like the Falcons job. You know, I, I think if I'm a, a first time head coach and I'm looking at the atmosphere and you're trying to figure out, you know, what kind kind of person am I working for? Um, what kind of, what does the division look like over the next few years? You know, kind of taking all that stuff into consideration. I like being able to come in and you have, uh, you have Matt Ryan and you have Julio Jones there. Um, you have some decent players that were drafted. Uh, I think Thomas Dimitrov did a nice job in, in kind of putting some pieces together there that you could work with. And, once Tom Brady and Drew Brees are out of your division, I, I think that you're going to have a pretty good time. You know, Matt Ryan is still going to be in that sort of mid to late prime for a quarterback. You're going to be able to squeeze out some good years there, or if not, his contract becomes dealable um, within the next few years. And so, I don't know. I like that job. I think Arthur Blank seems like somewhat of a good owner comparatively to others in terms of his patience. Um, you know, he did give Dan Quinn, um, you know, kind of a longer leash to work with even after you know uh, the way that things went during the Super Bowl so I think I would maybe I would certainly listen to Ed any head coaching job at this point if any teams wanted to bring me in but um, Atlanta would seem attractive to me um, in that regard and you know for for the worst I, I think you know, there's a lot of things that could be the worst. I mean, Houston, we don't know what that job is going to become yet. It's going to be a dream to work with Deshaun Watson. Everybody who's come in contact with that, with the player and the person says it's a phenomenal experience. That said, who is running the show there? Um, you know, who, uh, you know, what are we allowed to do? What are we not allowed to do? What do we have control over? How easy is it for the owner to be convinced that I'm not doing a good job or whatever it is? And so I think that job scares me. And I Detroit, similarly, I think, is a roster that Matt Patricia really stripped of its parts and let kind of sit there and rust. And so there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of meat on that bone, and that division is really, really competitive. And I think that would be a really hard job to come in and do well at immediately. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point about the Falcons and Arthur Blank. There are some drawbacks to that job. Some of it pertains to the GM position again, but they really have some tough salary cap decisions. Mm-hmm. Or They're tight on the salary cap. They're, they're going to be over the salary cap. Um, they have a decision to make on Matt Ryan. But I do think ownership there uh, makes that a more appealing job than perhaps some of these other positions. As you mentioned, the Texans, you know, what Shad Khan's comments were um, today regarding the control over the roster. Those are the kinds of things that kind of throw a crimp in the picture a little bit. And ultimately, when a head coach fails, the failure is not only on the head coach. I mean, that's why any opening that there is, you have to consider so many factors. And when things go wrong, there's a lot of reasons that go wrong. So if you're entering a situation 
there's going to be less than ideal circumstances. It's sort of picking the, the place where you think you will have the chance to kind of build or or maybe there was a, a change because someone had just been there for a long time or there, there are a lot of different circumstances where there's a head coach change. But I think when it comes to picking the next job, it's not just about the roster. It's also about the the ownership. Uh, and as we're recording, as a side note, Connor, um, John Elway has announced that he will step aside from having full roster control and he will hire a GM to work directly with Vic Fangio. So that is a big development in wow. Denver. We are recording Monday afternoon. Adam Schefter broke the news on ESPN. Uh, so there is another GM opening to add to the mix. That makes, I believe, seven GM openings. The Jaguars, Falcons, Lions, Texans, Panthers, Broncos, and Washington. That is, uh, you know what? I think that, and it, depending on how it shook out, you know, that is one of those things where good for you to kind of come to that realization. You know what I mean? Because how many head coaches do you have to go through? You know, you fire guy a guy like Vance Joseph after one season. You know, you cycle through Paxton Lynch and, you know, Drew Locke and all these other quarterbacks. Um, and, you know, you have such a hard time. And I think that while it took longer, certainly, than it should have, I, I think if you're Vic Fangio, you got to be doing backflips to, to get that evaluator in there and to be able to have that kind of pipeline to get the guy that you need there. I, I think that is a great sign if you're the Broncos, for sure. Yeah, Elway's statement says, while well, I'll continue to be president of football operations in 2021, the GM will have final say on the draft, free agency, and our roster. The person will be empowered to make all football decisions working in partnership with Vic. I will be there to support our GM and Vic, providing my perspective, helping with the big decisions, and being a sounding board whenever needed. With all that goes into the day-to-day responsibilities of a GM, the structure will set us up for success and allow me to focus on the big picture. So I agree, Connor. This is a step of self-evaluation. Things haven't gone the way that Broncos wanted. They've changed the coaches multiple times, as you pointed out. And so now they're changing the person who has final personnel say on the roster. As our editor Mitch would like to say, some big Vic energy in Denver today, no doubt. Good uh, Good for everybody there in Denver. All right. We have one more news topic. Connor, do you want to take this one? Sure. The playoff field is set, and boy, howdy, Jenny, there are some bangers on the schedule, along with whatever the complete opposite of banger is. Uh, Two questions for you. After seeing the field, do you agree that we should still have expanded playoffs, and what matchup looks best to you in the first round? I would say this year reinforced that the expanded playoffs was a mistake reinforce was a bad choice of words because this was the first year, but reinforce the perception that I had heading into the season that an expanded playoff was not a good idea is is what I should have said. Um, I think that was a part of a part of why it was difficult to pick a Sunday night week 17 contest, because I think when there are two first round buys in every conference, it adds an extra spice to the week 17 game because when there's only one team in each conference getting a first round by, then there's marginal benefit to being the two seed versus the four seed or, or whatever the case may be. And, you know, we saw the bills say, we want the two seed. We're going to play Josh Allen for the first half. And that worked out well for them. But um, I think the addition of a seven seed doesn't seem to add that much to the field. Uh, I, 
I don't know, maybe my mind will change over time, but the way things shook out this year, I mean, both conferences offer an argument for each side, I guess. You know, in the AFC, you can say, wow, look, there's seven teams that are deserving to be in. There are some teams that just missed it that you would have enjoyed seeing in the playoffs, the Dolphins being one of them. But then you look at the NFC and you kind of wonder how the Bears backed in. So I don't know, Connor. I'm not in favor of it. It was funny last night when everything had shook out. I'm, I'm, we're, this is coming out on Tuesday, so on Sunday night when everything shook out, um, our editor, uh, Mitch, said, Connor, do you want to revisit? Uh, he, he said, Connor, how do you feel about expanded playoffs now that the field is set? And I said, not good. Uh, I don't think the Bears should be in the playoffs. This is uh, this is pretty gross. And he said, okay, great. Here's what you wrote in February um, back when uh, back when they announced expanded playoffs. And the first line of the piece was, shut up, nerds. Expanded playoffs are going to be awesome. And so <laughs> uh, I seriously regret that decision. Um, you know, this is... Uh, I think 2020 uh, and I guess early uh, early 2021 is a big lesson to me to calm down and to digest my feelings before putting pen to paper. I think uh, that's going to be a big thing that Connor has to learn uh, in the new year moving forward. But I, I think in general, every year we're going to have to ask ourselves, would you rather a really good team miss the playoffs or a really bad team make the playoffs. And I think if you're going back to, if you cared about sort of the founding spirit of the NFL, I think they would rather a really bad team not make the playoffs, right? I think you would rather push the, uh, I think you would rather push that collective, um, push the collective whatever it is through the top and say well you know too bad if everyone in your in your conference has 10 wins you need 11 wins instead of yeah sure you're eight and eight and uh you don't have any wins against teams with winning records but yeah you can come on in and uh you can be in the playoffs too yeah and i always liked the idea that the nfl playoff field was a little bit smaller it was more exclusive it was really a feat to be able to make the playoffs it was a bar that you had to clear and the expansion makes it less so. But listen, they're not going backwards. It's probably a futile debate. The almighty dollar rules the NFL <laughs> and America. So here we are. We'll probably expand it to eight at some point in time. <laughs> um, but regardless, there are a lot of good matchups. I am looking forward to the Ravens-Titans rematch, Connor. There are a lot of games I'm looking forward to. But I was there last year in Baltimore And it was just such a stunning night for the Ravens. And they didn't want to have that same feeling again that they did leaving the stadium. It ended up raining that night. It was just this uh, abrupt end to what had been a remarkable dream season for Lamar Jackson, this exciting offense, and suddenly they were out. So now they're coming in. They're a wild card team. It's a very different situation. And... Roles are flipped a little bit, so now they're trying to kind of come in and see if they can upset the Titans season. I um I like I one of my favorite subplots, and it shouldn't be a surprising subplot, but one of my favorite subplots of the last few weeks of Weekside Podcast has been your uh, general excitement surrounding the Ravens. And if I have learned anything about the universe, it is to key into that 
and believe with all certainty that they're going to win the Super Bowl. And it's the only <laughs> thing that makes sense to me right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, so Je- Jenny is sort of like a, a North Star for me. And so, I, you know, the fact that she has been like all in on the Ravens and anybody who's listened has maybe heard some of that. I don't think it's necessarily bird related. I think this is, you know, re- uh, this is for real. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm jacked up about this now because you're jacked up about this. Well, I just wanted to see them have a chance to go to the playoffs. They've had kind of an unusual season, right? They they lose Ronnie Stanley. They have a COVID outbreak among the team. They really needed to recollect and get back on track. And they did so in a big way. They've been dominant the last few weeks of the season. It's reminding us a little bit more of the way they looked last year and I would like to see them have this chance again. I, I wanted to see them have the opportunity to get this playoff monkey off of their back. So I'm I'm really excited for that game. How about you, Connor? Which one is standing out to you? Well, anybody uh, who knows me knows that this is going to be a very weird chance to sort of dig up a repressed childhood memory. The Browns and the Steelers are playing in the playoffs again for the first mm-hmm. time since 2002 when a young Connor Orr had all of his friends over to try to sort of legitimize his football fandom. And, you know, all of my friends are 49ers fans and, you know, Steelers fans and Cowboys fans. And so there was a lot of, you know, they had that rich playoff history. They had been to the postseason. They had won Super Bowls. And I, you know, I kind of wanted to, this was my way of getting to the table uh, and, and, and bringing the Browns to everybody. And, and of course they lost and have never made the playoffs since then. And, you know, have since had three, one head coaches and 92 starting quarterbacks but um so yeah I'm I'm excited from a sheer standpoint that I imagine there's a young uh there's a young kid in a Baker Mayfield jersey who uh is just like me out there somewhere and uh you know I'm not saying I'm rooting for uh the the Steelers or the Browns or anything in particular but it'll be a fun uh, experience and I would uh, say to that child to uh, cherish it because maybe 20 years from now it will be the only uh, playoff game that you will ever be able to watch but it, in reality I think it's going to be exciting and I think the Browns are a good organization they feel more stable than they've been in the past and to have played as poorly as they did against uh, Pittsburgh the first time uh, to have them there in that second game where they almost lost again you know I feel like now that they've got a little bit of time to retool, who knows how healthy Ben Roethlisberger is going to be really coming into this. I don't know. I think it might end up being a good matchup here. I love any callback to that 2002 <laughs> season when Connor had his friends over. And the history of Steelers-Browns playoff games mm-hmm. is really uh, an interesting one because there wasn't just the 2002 one, which was the last appearance in playoffs, but there was the one at the end of the 1994 season as well, which was kind of the beginning of the end of Belichick's tenure there. So they go to Pittsburgh, the Browns go to Pittsburgh, and I remember talking to some of the members of that team because that was the final chapter of Belichick and Saban working together. Saban left for Michigan State uh, at the end of that season. And 10 months later, during the 95 season, Modell announced that he was moving the team to Baltimore. Belichick was fired at the year's end. So that was essentially the beginning of the end of the Belichick tenure in Cleveland. But that game was, it was really unbelievable that 
the Steelers racked up 238 rushing yards against the Belichick and Saban-led defense, which is kind of stunning to think about it in retrospect. The Steelers won 29-9, but most players on that team or people who were around that team thought if they could have beaten the Steelers, they would have made it to the Super Bowl. But they didn't. That season ended, and it was the last playoff game till 2002, and then now we here we are in 2020. Another Brown Steelers matchup. So it's really quite a history. Uh, or there's just these important benchmarks, I guess, in time for these Brown Steelers playoff games, Connor. Boy, and the NFC is just uh, putrid. Uh, this is going to be a bad first round uh, in the <laughs> NFC, right? I mean, you know, uh, Saints, Bears. I mean, the Saints are just dissecting people with Taysom Hill, you know, and th- this game's going to be over in the for- in the first quarter. Now watch uh, Shelby save this clip and I'm going to look like a giant. Uh, you know what, when the Bears and Mitch Trubisky come back and win this game. We don't know if Jared Goff's going to be in the uh, uh, Rams-Seahawks game right. and then uh, Tampa Bay and uh, Washington football team. I mean, the Washington football team barely beat an Eagles team that was trying to lose last night. So, yeah, I, I you know, so I will be locked into the AFC. I think the <laughs> AFC is where it's at. Uh, you know, I think that's where uh, all the fun is going to be. And uh, it also, I don't know. I just don't see who's beating the Packers right now. They just look so good. You know, they really team. do. Yeah, they feel like the clear favorites in the NFC. It would be a big surprise if if they do not make it to the Super Bowl. Of course, every postseason Connor brings surprises. So mm-hmm. that will be another clip that Shelby can save, and <laughs> I can eat my words on in a few weeks. But at this point, that's what it looks like. All right, this was a jam packed show, but we still have two more segments. On to the Oracle. Okay, so. Uh... You know, in hindsight, part of the reason that I was probably so fired up, Jenny, about the Sunday night football game was the oracle from the previous week was that I thought that the Giants were going to make the playoffs. I thought that they, I said they were going to beat the Cowboys. I said the Eagles were going to surprise Washington football team on Sunday night, and they were going to sneak into the playoffs. I still want to take credit for that. I think that that the uh, I was reading the tea leaves of the universe correctly. It was Doug Peterson who decided to stick a fork in that and yes. uh, and fry everything. So I, I I want you know I want partial credit for that. You should get like. partial credit. <laughs> um, but I think um, I think that the oracle this time I will center it around the coaching search um, and my other coaching search oracle uh just so everyone knows that i'm keeping score at home i'm not just your uh your daily shock jock who just spouts off i do uh, i do care about these things um and i did say that i thought that joe brady was going to be the surprise candidate the, or the kind of that hot young offensive name that people are talking about i stand by that but i would say that the jets my oracle prediction is going to be that we're going to see some searches go in certain directions. You know, maybe Urban Meyer does go to Jacksonville, um, you know, and some things line up the way that they're supposed to line up. But I think that the Jets are going to be the team that surprises all of us with their hire. I think that every year we have that one kind of woe candidate that isn't on anybody's list um, that sort of comes way out of left field. Um, If you want to count Urban Meyer as that guy, then that's fine. But I think that the other team that is going to do that is the Jets. I don't think they're going to go hot coordinator. I think that they're really going to pull a name um, from somewhere that is going to surprise a lot of people. So I think that uh, that that does sound a little vague. And I think that is um, 
uh, purposely so. I, I do reserve the right as the oracle to be sort of like a palm reader and speak in vagaries from time to time in order to boost my score. But um, I, I just have a weird feeling that the Jets are going to come out of left field with this hire and really surprise a lot of people. I like that, Connor. I think that's a good oracle. Is that is it specific enough, or do you want me? Do you think that I owe like, or do you think I'm okay with that? I think you're okay with that. You're thinking like a Joe Judge type hire for the Jets. Thinking a Joe Judge, or I don't know, like a like a Matt Campbell, uh, or you know, like a right. we, like like a weird, you know, or like a like like the Cardinals did with Cliff Kingsbury, right? right? Like I think we're going to see that kind of hire. Maybe not necessarily from college. Maybe it's a quarterbacks coach somewhere in the NFL, but. I think that this is going, you know, I think that Joe Douglas is the kind of guy that can shake that up. And, you know, in reality, he's, you know, uh, he's he's in that sort of powerful network of certain coaching agents and GM agents. And I think that he could probably pull a lot of strings to get that done. And he's he's got the implicit trust of ownership there mm -hmm. to really make a bold move, I think. And they're not going to stand in his way. So I don't know. I, I think that the Jets are going to be the uh, sort of that fun uh, coaching hire that we all look around and say, "Whoa!" So that, and I'm looking for, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and certainly Douglas is well respected, and he is in charge of the search. So it'll be interesting to see which direction he goes as he takes on that responsibility. Definitely. Now uh, for the uh, time for the weak side podcast, the conscience of the show, as everybody has come to know and love. What is our Ventus consensus for today? Consensus. There was a lot of discussion on Sunday about the incentives that players had to reach. So a certain number of catches triggers a $100,000 bonus. Or if the team is top five in yards allowed, then they get X number of extra money. Connor, it sparked a lot of conversation. Everyone thought it was fun and cute. And I very much respect players like Russell Wilson who went out of their way to make sure that a teammate of theirs got that bonus. But I would say as a practice, it is a really crummy labor practice. And I am opposed to any kind of quota or any kind of arbitrary metric that you have to reach in order to receive the rest of your compensation. Very often, these things are not out of your control or that are, are not in your control. They are out of your control. Uh, whether you have 84 catches or 85 or whatever the number may be does not define your season. There are times when you're doing other things that contribute to a play uh, other than being the person that catches the ball. Um, I just think we should stop looking at it as this oh, it's a fun thing and there's a lot of money on the table. Instead, we should be looking at it. This is money that teams have and are trying to withhold from the players yeah. who earn them all the wins and earn them the money that the teams pull in, the billions of dollars that the teams pull in. They're making them reach a certain number of catches, sacks, et cetera, in order to get a measly 100 grand more in the big picture that is a measly number. It is not a measly number for you or I, Connor. But if you work for a team that, rakes in bill is worth billions, then these metrics are outdated. They are unfair. And I think we should call them for what they are, which is a really crummy and unfair compensation structure. I totally agree. Um, you know, f uh, 
full disclosure, you know, I worked for a place once that, you know, you got more money the more clicks that you got. And, you know, uh, what, uh, you know, what a terrible thing that was in terms of, you know, the kind of work that that encouraged. And, um, you know, I think that anybody out there, right? I mean, if you're working at a job where, you know, you're, you're, you're putting in an honest day's labor and, uh, you know, and you're mentally and physically taxed and you feel the need to, uh, to, hit a certain quota in a call and 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 you know maybe your job is doing x amount of things a day like i have to build x amount of these and that's fine whatever that is i don't have a problem with that but you're totally right i mean just leaving that out there like that forcing somebody to go uh, way way far beyond what they need to do or you know contort their regular routine in any way shape or form in order to meet that is uh it's unfair it's uh and it's it's inhuman you know it if and, and it's especially gross when, you know, uh, you you kind of load up on these things and take advantage of these younger guys who think that they're getting money that they're just not getting in their deals. Because every deal is reported as X years and X million. But as as Jenny explained so well, so much of that is tied up in, well, you got to start 16 games. You got to make the Pro Bowl. You got to have 13 sacks. And, and none of those things are going to happen. Yeah, Every job is complex. There's not a single metric that defines how well you're performing. Uh, but it's especially true in the NFL, which is a physical game. It's a dangerous game. There are injuries that can compromise your ability to perform. Or you may have to sit out. You're risking your body in every play. Also, it's a team sport, and you have teammates, and they're, you're looking out for the team success, and you're just one part of that. So... I'm against the practice. I just wanted to correct the narrative because I kept seeing all these tweets on Sunday being like, how cool. And as I said, very awesome for someone like Wilson to go out of his way to change the play call to make sure that his teammates was able to get that extra money. I'm just opposed to the practice. Yeah, no, uh, that that was a, a very, uh, a very good one. I, we should like anthologize these. I'm just, I you know, not that like, They've been on fire lately. That's all I got to say. And I hope that our listeners uh, have uh, stick around to to the end of the pod for that. I think an anthology would be ultimately embarrassing, Connor. But I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was uh, we had a lot to discuss today, Connor. We did. This was and a packed show. This was a packed show and a lot more in the coming weeks. And as always, thank you for everyone who listens to the Weekside podcast. And we should have started off the show with this, but Happy New Year. May 2020, bring everybody happiness, good health, and maybe some kind of return to normalcy. All right. The Weekside podcast is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcast is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts.